Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by author and attorney Haley Moss. She just wrote the book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. Haley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. So right off the bat, I think that I want my listeners to understand what neurodiversity means and neurodivergent and neurotypical. Let's just get some definitions up there so that anyone who's not familiar with the terms can understand the rest of our discussion. Could you start with what neurodivergent means? Absolutely. So I think it's probably best to start with what neurodiversity is as a whole. And neurodiversity really speaks to this idea that we all have different brains, that how we experience the world and how we process our surroundings, so how we think through things, our intelligence, how we perceive things from a sensory perspective, and how we learn every single person is different. And that's not a bad thing. It's just natural human variation. And what seems to happen, at least so it appears, is that we have two main neurotypes, so to speak, is that we have people who are neurotypical or in the neuromajority, that their brains work in this very expected type way. And then we have folks who are neurodivergent, whose brains work outside of this norm. And people who are neurodivergent typically might have a diagnosis such as autism, ADHD, learning disabilities mental health or psychiatric disabilities, intellectual disabilities, or they might have an acquired brain difference, such as a traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's, or dementia. So when we're talking about neurodiversity and making sure that there's neurodiversity in the legal profession, as I was reading your book, one of the things that really popped to mind was heist films. Now, It seems that many law firms are looking for the perfect candidate and that there's a mold for the perfect candidate that doesn't differentiate a lot. But you'd never see a heist movie where everyone has exactly the same skills. If you're building a heist team, you want a safe cracker, you want an explosive experts, you're going, you know, Ocean's Eleven. You're trying to bring together people with different skills in order to produce this finished product. But I don't know that that's how law firms are currently looking at their own hiring process and how they're recruiting for their firms. Does that at all square with what you've seen? Oh, my gosh. First off, I love this analogy of the heist movie. It keeps making me think of the Ocean series. And I also was thinking of the Italian job because I think that's the last one that I've seen. So kind of as an aside, I absolutely adore that analogy. And I think that's a great way to look at it is that you have different people with different skills and different ways of solving problems on this team. That that team in Ocean's Eleven or the Italian job, for instance, might not have been successful if they didn't have a safe cracker or they might not have known that they needed a safe cracker. I think that's how law firms are kind of looking at this. Or instead, what's happening is the way that legal has previously seen neurodiversity and disability has always been more of from this liability standpoint or something to fear that it's always been a form of diversity that we don't always know how to deal with. We don't know what kind of accommodation somebody might need. We're not sure if this person is a good fit because we have this very prescribed idea of what an ideal candidate looks like. So I think for us, it's something that we're realizing is that we do need different types of problem solvers. We do need different types of brains. And disability as a whole has always drove innovation I think that law firms are a little bit late to that party, but I have hope that they are going to jump on board and realize, yeah, 
we might need a safe cracker who can analyze all of this data and discovery, or we need someone who might notice an issue that we might not have thought of before, or somebody who just has a different background because they've experienced this form of marginalization. They might have more empathy for a client than a neurotypical lawyer might have. Going back to the idea of fear, that law firms have this fear when it comes to neurodiverse employees, as someone who's neurodivergent myself, I have ADHD, there's always a little element of fear about, do I ever bring this up? Now, I'm of a slightly different generation than you are. When I was in grade school, this was not something that teachers were necessarily looking for. I wasn't diagnosed until I was a sophomore in college. And it was at that time, when I was 18 or 19, that we looked at all of the lists of symptoms and we said, oh my gosh, that's my dad. My father, who was a successful attorney, who was 53 at the time, he was 53 when he got his diagnosis. So he'd had the bulk of his career with a neurodivergence, but not understanding why he didn't process information the same way as his classmates or his colleagues, why he needed to do things in a different way in order to achieve success. You were diagnosed very young, and you found out when you were pretty young that you, you know, weren't neurotypical. So I think that there are pluses and minuses <laughs> to finding this mm -hmm. out at, at various stages. But what was your experience like in, in school, with your parents, and as you looked at whether or not you even wanted to try to go to law school or become a lawyer and what drew you to the legal field? First off, I think it's important to understand that when I was diagnosed with autism, I was three years old and it was 1997. So as we know now, the 90s were a little bit of a different time. And I think when we're talking about when folks are getting diagnosed, it's really important to note for a lot of neurodiverse conditions that there's a huge diagnostic disparity for women non-binary folks, and people of color. So I think that's really important to note, and especially when you're telling me about your experience as well of getting diagnosed when you were in college, I think that's really powerful to understand is that it happens a lot, and especially with the folks that I had the honor of speaking with and trying to get more background information for the book and who agreed to let me quote them, is that you do see a lot of this later diagnosis as well. I feel extremely privileged in the fact that I was diagnosed as a toddler but that was largely because I was non-speaking. And when you are a non-speaking kid, that is definitely something that raises some kind of flag in a parent's view of why isn't my three-year-old speaking when all of their peers are asking for stickers when they're in line at somewhere like Target. So that was not something that I had. But my parents chose to tell me that I was autistic when I was nine years old. And they sat me down because at the time I was absolutely obsessed with the Harry Potter series. The movies were just coming out. And I was just absolutely obsessed. Everything in my life was Harry Potter related. And my mom tells me that, like Harry, I have magical powers. And of course, being nine years old, I'm going to believe this. And she explains to me that being different is neither better nor worse. It's just different. And different can be extraordinary. So having this framework, I think, really did set the stage for understanding neurodiversity. So my parents didn't know anything about the concept or that there's social justice behind people with cognitive conditions and disabilities really seeking rights and equality in no matter whatever we do. But I think that the way that my parents saw things really did encourage me to pursue whatever I wanted to do in life. And 
I didn't know that I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know we had any lawyers in my family up until later in life. So my great uncle is actually an attorney. I didn't know this, but I never knew any lawyers growing up. And when I went to college, I thought that I was going to be a doctor. I signed up for chemistry that first semester. And after six weeks, I realized this wasn't for me. So I was back at the drawing board and had to think about what do I actually enjoy? What makes me happy? And I love to write. I love to talk. And whatever I did had to help other people. I was always raised that you have to give back. And I always just enjoyed helping others. So realizing that lawyers have the potential to do all three is how I landed on going to law school. Once you reached law school, a lot of the discussion that I've heard around people who are neurodivergent in law school, it circles back around to accommodations for the LSAT or classes, and it all involves just, oh, extra time. And I know that when I was in school, once I got my ADHD diagnosis, I was like, why would I even ask for that? Extra time doesn't help me. That's not where I'm struggling. Uh, Standardized tests were easy for me. It was completing long homework assignments that had deadlines that were far off. That That was where I struggled. And I didn't understand that accommodations don't have to just be, I ask for extra time on the LSATs. When you've been talking to people about what kind of accommodations have worked for them, either in law school or in firms, what are some of the themes that you have come across? First off, I completely agree with you with this whole idea of extra time is the only accommodation that's made available to neurodivergent folks. And I think a lot of that comes from that disability services is not always as well versed in different forms of accommodation as they should be. So some things that I think can be really, really helpful are, especially in law school, is things like having access to note takers. A lot of people think that those types of accommodations are only available or should be available to deaf and blind students in particular because perhaps they might not be receiving the same information or have it made accessible to them in the same way that a hearing or sighted student might. But at the same time, someone who is neurodivergent might need help prioritizing what information is the most important or even being able to stay focused, that that might be an accommodation that's helpful. Something that I know that in firms has worked a lot, because I've seen this a lot with colleagues and folks who have ADHD in particular who've spoken to me, is a lot of the conversation revolves around billable hours. We all know this from private practice and firms that if you're billing, you have to bill a certain amount of hours. And there's always this kind of mystery of how much time is this supposed to take, especially for young lawyers. And for those of us who are autistic or have ADHD, and if you find something really, really interesting, you want to talk about it or learn about it forever. And then all of a sudden you had this research assignment that probably should have taken you an hour or two and it took you the entire day. So something that has been immensely helpful that I've heard about is making sure that you get kind of time limits on how long something should take, that you might need help perhaps getting clearer instructions because the ambiguity that a partner might give you is really difficult. So a lot of accommodations, I think, aren't always as formal as we make them out to be, is that they must be this very formal thing like extra time, like having a note taker, when really sometimes it could just be improved and more efficient communication. Something I think about with accommodations more broadly when we talk about things like effective communication and making sure that there is no ambiguity when we're talking with our colleagues is that that's something that can benefit anybody, whether it's a young lawyer who's neurotypical, a neurodivergent lawyer, or a law student who's in their very first practice setting. 
is having those clearer expectations in particular makes it so nobody has this guessing game of what's going on in the first place. It might make us better mentors. It might make us more efficient lawyers. And it might also help us from getting distracted when somebody goes, hey, what's going on? And then the minute somebody talks to you, you have no idea where you left off from what you were doing. So I really like to come at this from this universal design approach is that when we implement accommodation solutions and we implement different fixes like this that can benefit anyone, it benefits everybody, not just people who have disabilities or people who are neurodivergent. And, you know, you had an anecdote in your book that I'd I'd love for you to share because I think that it shows not only how we can sometimes go down these research holes, but also the value that that sort of fervor uh, or intensity can bring to a law practice. Could you please talk a little bit about that? This was the anecdote about judges and how they can be removed from cases versus, I think, adjudicators? From arbitrators, yeah. Arbitrators. This was actually the very first legal research assignment I was given in my first job as an associate is I was asked to research something on the disqualification of an arbitrator. And the senior partner at the time told me just to look into what the standard was for judges, thinking that they were the same. And of course, I just start looking and I'm thinking to myself, what if there's just a different standard for arbitrators? And I just didn't know what to look for, but I thought there has to be something different. These are not the same person. That I am a very rules-driven, very analytical thinker at times, but I'm also very creative. And the partner originally was getting frustrated that this was taking a little bit longer than it should have. But by the time I turned in a memo, I said, here's the standard for judges. Here's the standard for arbitrators. And they were both completely different at the time. And there was actually a little bit of a wrinkle in there that what they ended up using ended up successfully disqualifying the arbitrator from the case. And I think it was because I purposely went out of my way to find that there was not the same standard for judges as there was for arbitrators. And it was probably one of the first times that I felt in practice that, wow, this different way of approaching a problem rather than just following what I was told to do in that very exact specific way and trusting my instincts and also trusting the way that my brain works has the potential to help our clients to win cases and even to just bring those solutions that we didn't know that we needed. And, you know, trusting the way that your brain works, I think that that's something most people come to, hopefully come to, more as adults. And that may explain a little bit why we think of neurodiversity more as it pertains to children than as adults. I know that in my life, I certainly struggled with certain classes, like um, math classes in high school were very difficult for me, except for one year when I had a teacher who didn't mind when I would just get up in the middle of class and wander over to a side chalkboard and do little doodles. I did great in geometry, and Mm -hmm. uh, part of it, I think, was allowing me that difference. But as an adult, when I was looking at how does my brain work, what are professions that would lend themselves well to the way that my brain works, which is high-intensity situations, need for creativity, different adrenaline-based situations, short deadlines, all of those things I found in journalism. And I wasn't required in the career I chose to put myself through some of the things that I, I wasn't so good at. And I do think that when you look at the profession of law as well, there's a lot in it that lends itself to being practiced very well by people 
who have uh, neurodivergent brains. And I think you see it, you cited a number of surveys and it seems like there's in the legal profession about three times higher <laughs> proportion of people with ADHD than we see in the general population. Uh, I feel like it was about 12.8% of attorneys with ADHD versus 4.4% of the general population. And I just, I find that so fascinating. In your experience as an attorney, what are the ways that the legal profession really can benefit by welcoming in more neurodivergent people? I thought those statistics were really interesting primarily because the studies didn't go into them any further. They just said, hey, there's this large percentage of attorneys with ADHD. And then, of course, the studies focused more on other lawyer mental health issues. But I think what really draws people who are neurodivergent to the profession, at least something that I think about regularly is a few months ago, a law school dean said to me as an autistic person that law is the software of society. Because we were talking about how a lot of autistic people really end up in science, technology, engineering, and math. And as an autistic person who didn't meet that stereotype, I always felt a little bit like I didn't belong. And he's like, it's the software of society. There's still lots of rules that need to be followed. And you also have the ability to argue why those rules might be unjust and possibly change those rules. And I thought that was really powerful. And something else that I learned, especially from folks with ADHD who explained why they were attracted to the profession, is they talked a lot about being very high achievers in school, that they always needed that constant stimulation, they needed that challenge, they needed an outlet to be creative, and they were also very creative and analytical at the same time. So I do think there's a huge place for neurodivergent people to thrive within the legal profession. I think what happens is that firms don't realize that they have this talent to begin with. And if they're not actually going out of their way to recruit it, because the, what they're really looking at, especially when you think of law students that are going through on-campus interviews or that very traditional recruitment process, is you're looking for people who have stellar grades, who made law review, who were on moot court that followed this very prescribed career path, this ideal candidate that we talked about that. It turns out as time goes on, there is no such thing as an ideal person. We're all individual human beings, and that's a beautiful thing. I just wish sometimes that hiring efforts would recognize that. But I think for neurodivergent folks and for firms, it's realizing that there is a need to have different types of brains, just like how we were talking earlier about safe crackers and heist movies, just like having a full team of people with different specialties and different ways of approaching problems really benefits everybody. So we get that stimulation we need. Like you said, with journalism, we get some of those very tight deadlines. And for those of us who might have some misunderstandings of social cues, we might also be able to get to the bottom of things. So I actually have friends who are autistic journalists, and a lot of them told me that they were very attracted to that by the fact that they could ask very powerful people questions. And sometimes they can ask inappropriate questions and get those folks to say things they might not otherwise say on the record. And I thought that was such an interesting thing because I was like, yeah, depositions sometimes aren't much different. As long as you're following the rules of what you can and can't ask pretty much and the other side doesn't object to it, you might be able to get a response that might be inappropriate for the party you're deposing that could be super helpful for the story that you're trying to tell in your case. So I do think those two professions have so much in common and so many different reasons why neurodivergent people especially thrive in there. 
And when it comes to thriving, you know, you and I are speaking together on July 27th, just for any of my listeners for listening to this later, and the bar exam's upon us. So I have to ask for all of the either neurodivergent listeners who may be facing the bar exam or maybe even entering law school or the neurotypical listeners who want to be supportive to their friends and loved ones whose brains work a little differently. What are some tips and tricks either you picked up or you've heard other people who you've talked to be able to use when it comes, let's let's break it into two parts. Part one, entering law school and succeeding in law school. And part two, tackling the bar exam. So we'll take part one first, entering law school. Any any tips for the listeners who are just going into law school and they know that they perhaps have Tourette's or a learning disability or are all you know on the autism spectrum or have ADHD? I think it's important to see what your law school offers in terms of accessibility services, accommodations, and if there's any supportive communities on campus. So since I've graduated from law school, disability rights activism has grown tremendously in the profession. So for students now, there's all sorts of wonderful resources that did not exist while I was in school, such as the National Disabled Law Students Association. And there's also a really cool program through Loyola Law School called the Quello Center. And what the Quello Center does is all sorts of stuff of building the pipeline for disabled undergrads to enter law school, help them prepare with resources for the LSAT, and even to give them support and different possible internship opportunities and whatnot as they go through law school. So I think building that pipeline is one thing that most people are thinking about and that I'm really glad exists because somehow that wasn't a thing three years ago when I graduated and it wasn't a thing six years ago when I entered law school in 2015. So I think that knowing what resources and supports are available, and I think for neurodivergent students, it's really important to be self-aware. I think that as disabled people more broadly, we're forced to be more self-aware than the average person. So we end up having to know our limitations more so than any other person has to. Is that we have to know when something is too much for us. So like you mentioned, today is July 27th, and today was also part of the Olympics. And watching this morning, actually, a lot of the coverage about Simone Biles has really resonated with me as well. So if you don't know, Simone Biles, the Olympic gymnast, is also neurodivergent. She's been talking a lot about her mental health, and she also has ADHD, is that she withdrew from the team finals today, citing mental health concerns and wanting to look out for herself. And having that self-awareness, I think, is something that we know that we have to do. And law school, while it's no way on the same level as competing in the Olympics, it often does feel like competing in the Olympics. Everybody around you is really smart, really motivated, and really determined to succeed. And sometimes you might feel like because you're not doing the exact same training regimen or study skills, you're going to fall short, that you're not going to be on top somehow. But you have to look at it as the goal is just to get through it. Like you made it to this Olympics type thing. You made it to law school. You are going to get through it and you are going to do this as long as you know how to take care of yourself. And taking care of yourself and knowing when it's too much is probably one of the most radical acts of care you can do. So I'm thinking about that today as well as we have this discussion. To the Simone Biles discussion, I think one of the most valuable things about her act there is showing all of the young gymnasts who she is competing with and all the young gymnasts watching that 
prioritizing your health and safety is more important. You're more important than your score. And Mm -hmm. so I hope that that does, you know, I think that, you know, certainly the sports community can learn that. And I hope that everyone can learn that when you look at the rates of mental health issues and, and addictions with attorneys and anxiety disorders, there's a lot of crossover between many of these disorders and they can feed into each other in, in interesting ways. And I think that anyone in a public facing position prioritizing their own well-being and mental health deserves to be applauded. So that's what I'll say there. But Me too. I'm, I'm with you on that for sure. Let's dive into the bar exam. So the bar exam itself, um, I recently tried to explain this to a Canadian who was kind of boggled at the way that the American legal system sets up the, the bar exam. And this almost, it feels from the outside as someone who never had to take it, almost like a hazing ritual that students go through. So making it through the bar exam, go. It is a hazing ritual, 100% with you on that. If you know anything about the history of the bar exam, it was originally set up as a gatekeeping device. So it actually was designed originally to exclude women and people of color. It is not something that we're very proud of. And based on how things are going, it also seems to have ableist implications that are excluding disabled people. So we've seen that with remote bar exams. We've seen that with the accommodations process, all sorts of messy things going on there, too. So my own personal biases on the bar exam completely aside, some advice. If you are planning on receiving accommodations, start that process early. You don't know how long it's going to take, and you should probably begin that process while you're in law school. So if you're receiving or planning on receiving accommodations on the bar exam, you need to demonstrate a history depending on your jurisdiction. So you might need to get accommodations in law school. You might need to have accommodations when you take the multi-state professional responsibility exam, and then you can use that. But again, like we talked about earlier, accommodations aren't just extra time. When I took the bar exam, I didn't know what options were available other than extra time. And then when I got to the convention center, so I took the Florida bar and it was hosted in this giant convention center in Tampa, Florida. If you want kind of a mental picture of it, imagine if you've ever been to a convention before and you've been in one of those giant open spaces. I think about this because the only other time I've been in a convention center that large was for the International Auto Show on Miami Beach. And I imagine it completely empty, except with a table that seats two people like every so often. And somehow you're able to get like 2000 plus people in there. And of course, because the ceilings are high and there's not a lot of like other noise and stuff. It has that sort of industrialish vibe in the way that a Home Depot might. I guess that's kind of my best way of describing the sensory profile of a place like that. And students who were receiving certain accommodations, I don't know what for because I don't know any individual bar takers history, nor should I, is that sometimes they had the ability to take the bar in a private setting. So there were maybe only 10 hopefuls in the room rather than 2,000. I'm not exaggerating saying there were 2,000 people in the room when I took the bar exam. And I remember because I felt like I white-knuckled a lot of law school because I didn't know what accommodations would be made available to me. And at the time, my law school was very much aggressive about having new diagnostic paperwork. And if you know anything about getting diagnosed with autism, ADHD, or learning disability, even if you have those records, getting them re-diagnosed basically as you get older is a very expensive and time-consuming process. And my law school at the time wanted that, and I decided not to go through with that process. 
So I felt like a lot of the time I was self-accommodating, especially because extra time wasn't what I needed. And when I got to the bar, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is such an overwhelming place. And I remember I got there a day or two early just so I can kind of get the lay of the land, understand how that convention center was laid out, get myself ready for that sensory profile of it all. But I think a lot of what happens for neurodivergent bar takers is you're already set in this, this might not go well attitude from the minute you graduate law school, because everyone is telling you that there's a very specific way you need to study for the bar. I did not do well studying in the law library while I was in school, and I knew it wasn't going to work for me on the bar. Every single person I knew was studying in the law library. Many of my peers were basically letting me know without saying it or sometimes actually saying it that I was destined for failure on the bar simply because I was studying at home. I knew that studying at home worked better for me because I had my specific little space at my kitchen table. That was my office for the eight weeks or however long the bar study period was. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. And I was able to know my bedroom is a no bar zone. And I know at the end of the day, I can go exercise or watch TV or do whatever I need to do. So I was able to set a routine very easily. And at the same time, it was harder and harder to stick to as time went on because the bar is really just a mental fatigue game and mental endurance test. So I think for neurodivergent students, it's knowing you have to trust yourself more so than anyone else. If something isn't working for you, even though it's the prescribed conventional wisdom of this specific bar prep program is going to work for you, this specific study regimen is going to work for you, if that's not working for you, it doesn't mean you're going to fail the bar. It means that you need to know yourself best to know to pivot your plan. So I remember at the time, all of my friends took one specific commercial bar prep program. And I chose to take the other commercial bar prep program because it had shorter lecture segments, which I knew would help me focus more and I'd be able to chunk the information better in 20 to 30 minute increments more so than four hour increments. And it had captions. And at the other time, the other commercial programs made you request an accommodation to receive captions. So for those of us who are wondering why I'm talking about captions, captions are an accessibility thing that while it's designed initially for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, they benefit all sorts of different types of learners. So if you are someone who is a visual learner when the information given is auditory, it can help you process. Or if you're thinking, wait, hold on, I missed a word, or I can read faster than they're speaking, it helps everybody. Or if you just get distracted easily, you can always go back and see exactly what word you missed. So captions was something that helped me when I was watching the lectures in bar prep. And that was part of why I chose the program that I did too. And of course, you get told because you didn't choose the same program that the majority of your peers did that you're destined to fail. So I think you have to really ignore what everyone else is doing and really trust how your brain works and how you learn best and where you learn best. And it's really hard when every message you're getting is telling you that you're doing it wrong because you're not doing the exact same thing everyone else is doing. I would never have chosen to experience living in the COVID-19 pandemic. So in no way do I want to say, hey, it's great that this happened. Mm -hmm. What I do think has been positive is that in being forced to be more flexible, I think a lot of firms, a lot of people have discovered that a one-size-fits-all work environment isn't necessary for the firm as a whole, or in my case, the magazine as a whole, to experience success and to complete work well and in a timely way. What have you seen crop up while we've all been living through the pandemic and having to be 
more flexible with our work and home lives that you see as positive for disability rights and access? So much increased accessibility. Oh my gosh. This is the most I've ever been hopeful about accessibility, especially digital accessibility. So all I really learned at first is how ableist and discriminatory so many policies surrounding reasonable accommodation were. Remember in the before times when if you asked to work from home, somebody looked at you like you were just completely on a different planet? And if disabled people requested to work from home because they might have needed physical therapy, they might have needed access to a personal care assistant or other medical or cognitive needs, that was seen as an unreasonable accommodation. It was seen as an undue hardship under the law. And look how quickly we were able to pivot to having everybody in this environment. So it really proved that it wasn't unreasonable to begin with. It's just that we didn't want to invest the energy in setting up those systems We as an industry, I think, are usually pretty slow at adopting technology, and I saw courts go completely virtual in about a week and a half. I thought that was incredible to see. And it really did show me that, see, if we actually took this seriously, we can do this. So for me, I've been very hopeful about that increased accessibility, and I hope that when we do have this return to the office that we might have hybrid models for working in person, working from home, or if other neurodivergent and disabled attorneys and staffers do need an accommodation to work from home, we aren't just telling them that it's completely unreasonable. So at least for me, I find that something that's hopeful. And also some of the barriers to access that I may have had in a traditional office setting. So my autism makes me very sensitive to certain sensory things. So I am very bad about fluorescent lights. I want to question deeply the person who invented them. If you don't know why I hate fluorescent lights, they are very bright and they hum. And now that I said that, you probably won't be able to unhear them humming. So the humming of them always distracted me and the brightness might sometimes also give me headaches or migraines. And of course, asking my office to replace those fluorescent lights is completely ridiculous. They're probably not going to do that. But when I'm at home, there's no fluorescent lighting. I could just work in a place that's quiet or a place that has dimmer lighting or whatever it may be. So I do think that in a lot of situations, working from home and having that remote work option really does eliminate some of the burdens on firms and employers to really implement certain accommodations. And I think that in many ways it does give accessibility for many, many other things. I also feel like I've gotten to have opportunities and meet people and connect with people and attend things that otherwise I might not have. So even going to CLE programming sometimes, it might be very overwhelming for some folks to be in a huge crowd. You don't have to. You could watch it pre-recorded or you could watch it after the fact. Or if you're someone who struggles with auditory information, you can always watch it back later. You can always read the captions because it's a lot easier to caption something digitally than in person with cart services rather than having like a bot or an AI transcribe a Zoom meeting. So there's so many different accessibility features that we have access to that save us time, money, and make more people able to participate. One section that I was really glad you included in the book, which for the listeners listening, the title again is Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. I know that this is an area that a lot of my readers and my listeners in the legal professional think about all the time, and it's networking. Whether you know yourself to be neurodiverse 
or whether you're neurotypical, but you are someone who is shy or experiences anxiety around networking. I really thought that the section in the book talking about neurodiverse networking could be useful, not just for people with any of these conditions, but just in general to deal with it. And and I loved that, you know, basically this is start out with a plan. So could you talk through how you advise people to approach networking events where they may be feeling some dread or anxiety about trying to do rainmaking when it just isn't something that comes naturally to them? Oh my gosh. Networking for me has always been that thing that fills me with a sort of dread as well. So when I say start with a plan, I think it's important to have a goal in mind because if you look at networking as I have to do this, I have to talk to as many people as possible or something like that, you're just going to get overwhelmed, especially if it's already hard for you because you're shy or you're neurodivergent or you feel pressure to drink alcohol or whatever there might be. And that's actually the one thing that I regretted not including once I did get the book in print is I'm like, oh, I forgot talking about what happens if you don't drink. And then I ended up writing a column about it elsewhere. So go figure. But I think with having a plan is make a reasonable goal for yourself. And a lot of that plan for me is always, okay, if you can talk to one or two new people and hand them a business card, you did really good. And only stay for a certain amount of time or you're going to get overwhelmed or set a limit for yourself to make this very doable. So if it's a networking event that's supposed to go on for hours and I tell myself all I have to do is talk to two new people or stay for a full hour and then reevaluate how I feel, that doesn't feel so daunting anymore. And I also think it's important to have a buddy if you feel very nervous going by yourself. And having a buddy is great because if you're feeling overwhelmed, they might be able to support you. Or if you're not good at meeting new people or talking about yourself, they can always help you with it. It always looks a lot better when somebody else talks about me than if I talk about myself because then I seem kind of self-centered. So if I'm going networking with you, Lee, I might say Lee is a really really smart journalist, and she's so insightful in the questions that she asks. You have to know her. That sounds a lot better than Lee going up to someone and saying what a great journalist she is, right? (laughs) So that's why I think the buddy system also works super well, especially if you're not someone who enjoys talking about yourself because you're afraid that you might miss some fundamental social cue or seem too self-centered. I also think that having an escape plan is really good because every so often you get someone who's going to talk your ear off. Sometimes that might be me, or sometimes that might be someone else talking my ear off. And it's really sometimes great to have that mental script of going, it was so great to meet you. Here's my card. Let's keep in touch. And then just know to escape the situation. Or you're just overwhelmed because it's been an hour and it's really crowded and it's really loud and you know that you have to escape. So that escape plan might mean, okay, I want to come back because I haven't talked to my two people. I'm just going to run to the restroom, freshen up, take a deep breath because it's quiet there usually. And then I'm going to come back or it's okay. It's eight o'clock at night. I need to get home safely. Do I have a buddy to get a ride home with that we agreed upon this when it's time? Or am I going to get an Uber home or am I going to drive home? How can I be safe? And I think when it comes to networking, I think safety is, of course, paramount. And especially if you are drinking or you are impaired in some way, of course, safety is most important. More so than professionalism, I'd rather you be safe than and be an unprofessional mess than be unsafe and hurt yourself and be very professional in the process. So I think when we talk about networking, we have to understand that it can be overwhelming, but if we break it down and we also give ourselves any support or help that we can in that process, it makes it a little bit less terrible. 
I'm going to pivot here because you devote a chapter in the book to this, and I don't want people to come away thinking that this is only a book talking to firms and lawyers about um, attorneys who are neurodiverse, because a lot of the people that you may encounter in your daily work who need your, whether it be empathy, understanding, or um, accommodations, could be your clients. So you have a whole chapter on this, and I think that it would be very useful for anyone to go in and read about cultural competence and disability etiquette. But just in general, how would you like attorneys to think about neurodiversity in their clients and how they can be approaching the people who come to them for help in the best, most productive way for everyone involved? I think the best way to really address this cultural competency and disability ed Etiquette really isn't that you have to have a really substantial education on disability rights. I think that a lot of people think that with social justice, if you don't know the magic words or the vocabulary, you're not going to be a good ally. So as an attorney, you're being someone's advocate. And in a lot of places, you are being the ally that's being trusted with something that might be very personal or very vulnerable. So it's knowing how do we do this allyship thing right and how are we able to best communicate with one another. At the end of the day, most interactions we have with our clients come down to communication, and communication differences can be difficult for anybody. A lot of neurodivergent folks will have a different style of communication, different preferred methods of communication, or just communicate differently than you do, and that's okay. So I think it's important that we understand how do we not offend this person, how do we make them feel respected, and of course making sure that unless it's authorized that way, that we're talking to them and not about them in front of them. This is something that actually happens to me more often than I would like to admit is that people might talk about me right in front of me while not realizing that I'm perfectly capable of speaking. Sometimes it's very awkward when it's not a networking situation and somebody goes, you know, Haley's a really accomplished writer. And at the same time, I'm sitting there like, you could just ask me to talk about my work. It's okay. Like I can handle myself. And sometimes I might want that introduction, but a lot of times we might offer assistance when it's neither wanted nor needed. But I think the number one thing when we talk about communication is making sure everybody understands what's going on. A lot of it really comes down to language. So most of us who are talking about this as lawyers, we went to law school. We know there's all sorts of different legal jargon and what we're doing. And I think being able to break it down so a layperson can understand is one of the most powerful tools that we have in our toolbox. And especially if you're representing somebody with an intellectual disability, it's really important that we use plain language. And when I say plain language, there's a difference between how a layperson may speak and plain language. So the best way to describe plain language is it's taking adult topics and breaking them down into language that anybody can understand. It doesn't mean that we're not going to tell this person about this very adult topic. Think about something like confidentiality, for instance, that someone with an intellectual disability may not have heard that word before. They might not know what confidentiality means. But if you explain to them without minimizing it whatsoever is that any secret that you tell your attorney, they can't tell somebody else unless you say they can, that makes a lot of sense. That will probably make sense to somebody who doesn't have that understanding. So making sure that we're speaking in ways that are respectful, but also able to communicate what we're trying to say, I think is absolutely the most important thing we could do. I think to round out our discussion, I'd like to tackle stigma. And that's both stigma coming from the outside and stigma 
fears you may have for yourself. I know that when I was diagnosed, my parents counseled me that, you know, this is private healthcare information. If I want to share it with someone, if I feel safe sharing it with someone, uh, I can do that. But there may be instances where I want to keep that secret or I feel like it's not safe information to share with someone. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate that decision? I, I liked what you had to say about asking for accommodations, that you can ask for accommodations without disclosing everything to your employer or your professor if you don't feel comfortable in the moment doing that. But you were very thoughtful throughout the book in talking about disclosure and when you felt safe doing that and moments in which you decided, you know what, this is an information I feel like sharing right now. Absolutely. And I think something to keep in mind for neurodivergent and disabled folks is that disclosure is a highly personal and situational decision. So how somebody might choose or not choose to disclose at work might also be very different than how they might do it with a managing partner, a colleague, a friend, or even somebody that they're they might be romantically interested in is that that conversation might look extremely different or might happen at a very different point in time. I think that's something that's very much worth noting when we talk about disclosure. So when we navigate those conversations, we have to understand why are we having them? What are we looking for? Are we trying to bring our full selves into this situation that we feel like we're lying or keeping a secret if we don't say something? Are we trying to get an accommodation? Or is there another purpose behind this discussion? And I think that for each person, they might have a different reason why they're disclosing or why they're thinking about balancing that decision. But if you don't feel comfortable disclosing at any point, there's so many different ways to get the help that you may need or to be able to get assistance. Something that I like to do and that was mentioned to me is this idea of soft disclosure. So how do you disclose without actually saying what you have but still advocating for yourself? And in soft disclosure, it might just be using an affirmative statement that at least signals to a partner or a supervisor or somebody who has authority that you're super motivated and proactive without really saying what your disability is. So for someone with ADHD, that might be just saying to the managing partner that I work really well if you give me clear instructions or when you give me clear instructions is it says that this is my learning style. And when things are ambiguous, this is really difficult. But when you give me clear instructions, I'm able to do my job so much better. And then together, you could figure out what those clear instructions look like. Does it look like writing out certain steps? Or does it look like being told, can you research this specific issue rather than go write a response? I think that how we talk about that can be really powerful. And using those sort of assertive statements is a great way to do a soft disclosure because it doesn't just say, I have ADHD, quote unquote, I have different executive functioning issues and getting into the whole medical jargon and maybe making somebody feel uncomfortable if they've never had that conversation before or they're not really sure what to say. But if you said something like, I work best when you give me clear instructions, that pretty much answers the question of this is why it's hard for me. And if you help me, then I can help you. And both parties walk away feeling empowered. Well, Haley, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. One question I had for you is, if our discussion has made one of my listeners more curious about, you know, looking more into the way that their brain works or differences that they've noticed 
in how they respond to the world versus other people seem to respond to the world, you know, what would be your advice to them? I think that self-discovery is one of the most powerful tools that you have. So if you're walking away from this conversation thinking, oh my gosh, I might be autistic. I might have ADHD that's never been identified. That's a really powerful moment for you. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that. I encourage you to investigate further. So whether that means spending more time online, listening to the voices of more neurodivergent folks, possibly seeking out a diagnosis with a psychologist or other professional, or even just knowing that for your own knowledge so then you feel like you have another part of your identity and that you're able to understand why you work the way you do, that's completely valid. So if you're someone who thinks you need formal accommodations, definitely going for that formal diagnosis can be really, really a game changer for you, especially for students and professionals. I think that we think so much of diagnosis is for young children. And also be kind to yourself because like we were talking about earlier, there's all sorts of different barriers to receiving information and a diagnosis and other disparities depending on other demographic factors. So don't beat yourself up thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just figured this out later in life. It doesn't make you a bad person. And no matter what, you are valid and loved and should be valued for who you are. I love that. And I would also encourage my listeners to show yourself some grace whenever you are comparing the way your brain works to the way someone else's brain works or the way they seem to thrive. Just because that's not the way that you thrive does not mean that you're doing something wrong. You're just doing it different. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.